I'm a card carrying Bayesian at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post game podcast. Welcome to the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast, your crash course of the major themes from our two-hour program, Wharton Moneyball, which airs live on Wednesdays in the morning at 8 a.m. Eastern Time until 10 a.m. Eastern Time. I'm your host of this podcast, Professor Adi Weiner, and I'm also the co-host and collaborator with my colleagues Cade Massey, Eric Bradlow, and Shane Jensen on Wednesday mornings. I'm a professor of statistics at the Wharton School, and I'm here today to break down the week's top takeaways. We had a wonderful guest this past week, Keith Law, a senior baseball writer for ESPN and an analyst for ESPN's Baseball Tonight, an author of Smart Baseball, the story behind the old stats that are ruining the game and the new ones that are running it and the right way to think about baseball. So Keith is one of the great journalists who has integrated sabermetric statistical thinking into the game of baseball, and we have some terrific segments to share with you all from our two-hour show. And our first discussion happened to be a little bit about um, what is going on with Moneyball. Remember, Moneyball itself is the revolution of baseball using statistical analysis. And we asked Keith to expand on what is going on with Moneyball today. Moneyball is essentially a narrative account of a specific front office, and obviously Billy Bean himself, who's a big personality too, trying to find ways to compete despite a massive financial disadvantage and latching on to this idea of using statistics to find value that the rest of the market was overlooking. But he doesn't really spend a lot of time talking about the individual stats. It's not his kind of book, certainly. I don't think that was at all his intention. Then a lot of readers came away with this idea that, oh, Moneyball just means on base percentage. Well, I actually say in the book on base percentage is the best of all of the old stats, but that's not what analytics is. And even if you walked away with Moneyball saying, look, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna look at on base percentage, I'm gonna skip batting average, I'm gonna look at on base percentage, it's gonna be my main stat. You would have certainly been better off, but I don't know that you would have actually understood the philosophy anymore. You would have just switched using one kind of incomplete stat for a better one, but without, you know, it's sort of the old saying, with all thy getting, get understanding. You've got to know why the A's were looking at on-base percentage and why teams are using other advanced stats at this point. And you don't have to agree with everything I say in the book. I just want you to walk away from it, understanding the ideas, and then we can have a debate. So what Keith was explaining is the kind of dichotomy. The book Moneyball really just kind of talked about the story of the front office that Billy Bean ran. And one of the things that you take away from it is that he used on-base percentage as a way to, to find value in players that were, that were undervalued by the market. But of course, there's much more to it. And what Keith is addressing is the fact that it doesn't understand or it doesn't elucidate the why. Why, why is it that OBP is what it was? And that's really the first of many, many stats that are used today to make decisions on all levels in the front office and even on the field. So what Keith is going to talk to us next is about his philosophy about advanced stats in baseball. One, just obviously, I believe that analytics has a substantial role 
in valuing players at all levels. It's talking specifically in baseball, I understand this is true in other sports, too. I, I only know baseball. Although it's a lot harder in other sports. It still is a lot harder in other sports. Yes, and that's I mean, in part because baseball is very aggressive about making its data public where other sports have not done so. Now, it's not true with StatCast, but it was true with PitchFX in particular. And I don't even know that that was... Uh, Major League Baseball thought of it in that way. Hey, we're just going to make this open source and let the community build up around it. But that's what's happened, and the sport has certainly benefited from it. Also, baseball being a series of discrete events as opposed to hockey, basketball, soccer, which my, my understanding is that they have to be modeled more as flows and collecting data on player locations was always a, a bit more difficult. They're also least, very individual in baseball. It's a pitcher versus a batter, exactly, for the most part. Exactly. Well, and, you know, typically there's one person touching the ball at any given time, so it's very easy to isolate. Right? This is the player we're focusing now. And, and with StatCast data, it's extremely easy to do that, at least to isolate who you're talking about. Yep. Baseball can be analyzed. It is discrete segments. They are almost what we would call in in statistics independent and identically distributed. They're not exactly independent, nor are they exactly identically distributed, but the approximation is good. And so we can use good mathematics to analyze baseball that it's not. Keith talks about in other sports, uh, um, somehow baseball is different because only one person touches the ball at a time. That's true of baseball and it's true of the other sports, too. It's just that in those other sports, it is kind of a flow where the location of the other players really changes and those changes matter. And that w- that's why baseball is so, much more, is so much more amenable to that kind of analytical analysis that we like to think about is so important. And the other sports are, are starting to catch up. We had a chance to ask Keith about something, a subject which is dear to my heart, which is is essentially defense evaluation in baseball. That is an article that I, and I've written about this extensively. It is getting better and better. The analysis of baseball fielding is getting much better because of data. So let's hear what Keith has to say. I interviewed a bunch of analytics directors, individual analysts while writing the book. Some of them are quoted in the last uh, two chapters. I asked them, what do you do for defense? And what do you think about the public defensive measures? And the best quote I got was from an analytics director who's been in the business about 10 years already. He said, look, UZR and DRS are fine. They're certainly the best for what is publicly available. They're directionally correct. What we have internally, based on StatCast data, blows them out of the water because StatCast records the locations of every fielder on the play. So you can now know how far did Byron Buxton go to catch that ball. We didn't have that until StatCast data recorded where he started the play and then tracks him actually all the way until he actually makes or fails to make the catch. Once you have that information, you can measure defensive value and defensive prowess in terms of a predictive value with much greater precision. That's all, positioning has always been the big missing variable in any attempts to value defense in the public sphere. Holy crap, Batman. Let me tell you, this is a big news here. What Keith is saying is that he's talked to the insiders in baseball, and he's saying that the traditional statistics, not even the traditional ones, the, the, the analytical methods like the one that I developed, the ones that Mitch Lichtman have developed, it's called UZR, and there are others, defensive runs saved, they are only directionally accurate, and that the new analyses that are coming out of the StatCast is far, far better. Now, I will reserve some judgment until I do my own analysis. One of the things that I've learned about statistics is that there are lots of ways to do it, do it right, and also do it wrong. And so once you start to dig into the measures a little bit, 
We'll learn a little bit about how valid these measures are. But of course, all this is still proprietary. None of us here in the public's domain has access to what the Major League Baseball teams have themselves. But what Keith is talking about is the ability to track um, exactly where a a player is positioned and use that positioning to uh, evaluate fielding performance. The problem with that, actually, that's certain, of course, nice, but we don't even have the velocity. So fielding historical UZR and and uh, and safe and uh, defensive run saves don't even have the velocity off the bat, which I think is the most important thing to integrate into uh, figuring out how valuable a fielder is. So we continued with, with Keith. He had much more to say. And one of the things we had a chance to talk about is what, whether there'll be new data, new statistics that could be used for scouting new talent for teams. First, and I'm going back even to when I was with the Blue Jays from 02 till right before the 06 draft. At that point, it was largely about just adding essentially a filter or a sieve, saying, all right, let's sort of shake this out and see maybe some players will fall through who we were overlooking, who'd perform particularly well, or players who, you know, the scouts love, but hey, here's some indicators in his performance that say, maybe we shouldn't take him in the third round, maybe we should rank him more as an eighth rounder. That was about the best you could do with the publicly available information on college players. There was almost nothing available on high school players. What's changing now is TrackMan data, which is part of the StatCast system, is available on a lot of amateur players now, even high school players. Like when they go play in a showcase event at Wrigley Field, the Cubs can turn perfect the system game on right, yeah. and record the perfect game does one at yeah. Petco. And now, not only is that giving teams data that, where they never had it before on high school players, but it's changing what teams are asking scouts to collect. Yep. Eventually, we're going to have some of this this raw data, which we could use to forecast uh, performance in the major leagues, given a high school level performance. We're now starting to get very detailed information on how hard a high school player hits the ball, how fast they throw, and that can be used to forecast uh, um, essentially viability or value at the major league level. We spoke to Keith right before the All-Star game, and he had written extensively about some of the mismeasures and oddities of the All-Star selection, including the fact that Chris Bryant, the reigning NL MVP, um, one of the most recognizable stars in the game, was was excluded from the All-Star team, and that G.J. LeMahieu, who's probably the worst position player, is actually on the list. And one of the things that Baseball Reference did was to kind of talk about why this was a good or bad thing. I wrote a column the other day on the All-Star ballot and pointed out that D.J. LeMahieu, statistically speaking, is the worst position player on either of the two All-Star rosters. It's funny, Major League Baseball sent out a list of the rosters to the media before the announcement. They put wins above replacement on there, the baseball reference version, and LeMahieu had the lowest. So, I mean, we can argue over whether war is a precise enough measure, but Major League Baseball themselves highlighted this for me. It was easy for me to look and say, oh, hey, hey, that guy's got the lowest wins above replacement. He's been the least productive player this year of anyone on the two all-star teams. So I highlighted that and said he shouldn't be on. Chris Bryant should be on in his place. The volume of responses, in addition to just Rockies fans who appear to have lost their binkies over this, you would be floored how many of them are citing batting average, RBIs, and fielding percentage, because that's how they've always discussed players. And a lot of them, I've just said, we can't even have a discussion if those are the stats you're talking about, because they are full of noise and ultimately, things like RBIs are just useless for measuring a batter's mm-hmm. contribution. Yep, that's been the debate going on for the last uh, 10, 20 years. Those traditional statistics, batting average, RBIs, fielding percentage, really are have not so much value. And there are far better ways of measuring a player's contribution 
using different, more advanced statistics. Yet the public is still hung up on them. I'm just finishing a biography of Ted Williams, and he was f- absolutely fixated with the batting title, the batting average title, despite the fact that by traditional measures, he blew just about everybody out of the water. I mean, non-traditional measures, he blew everyone out of the water. Yet batting average was the fixation at that time. In fact, it's called the batting champion. The person who wins the batting average title that has the highest batting average is considered the, the batting champion. I can defend the batting average as a measure in a simple sense. It is a success rate, and, and, and the person who is the highest batting average has the highest success rate. In other words, if you think of extracting uh, walks and errors, uh, not walks and errors, just walks, um, extracting those from your, from your attempts, the batting average is, is the success rate, and the one who has the highest success rate in some sense is the best batter, but you really have to weight the different types of batting outcomes rather than just all treating them all equally as batting average does. Now, in truth, we could have talked to Keith Law forever, considering how many of his interests line up with ours, but we also had a chance to talk to Finbar Kirwan, who is a high-performance director at the U.S. Olympic Committee, and one of the things that Eric asked him about was the return of investment on dollar spent and how you get data on valuating such a measure. I guess I'm fortunate working in non-judged sports, if you will. I'm working in sports that are defined by time and distance. So let's say in track and field, you know, you're either running 100 and under 10 seconds in meddling or you're not. Uh, similarly, you're either shot, throwing the, if you're a man, you're throwing the shot put at 22 meters or you're not. And if you're not, you're unlikely to meddle. So it is, the boundaries are pretty clear and it is pretty black and white. So we have a lot of historical data that give us the opportunity then to be able to assess athletes in their current state and be able to project out to where we anticipate they'll go. So, you know, we look at peak age. So we look at what is the age profile of of the event that the athlete is in? What is the age of the athlete at the next games? And how do we make that assessment that, yeah, they're hitting their peak age to perform at their best, um, let's say, in Tokyo in 2020? Or are they going to wage out? Is it by 2018 that we feel that it's just not uh, those extra two years are probably going to be too much for this athlete. Similarly, uh, we look at two called medal expectancy. Medal expectancy basically is looking at all of the historical information we have plus the current information on individual events. And- so one of the tools they use to evaluate performance is how um, how actual performance uh, targeted expected performance. And their goal was 120 medals in the this past Olympic Games in Brazil, and they ended up with 121. So the United States athletic team, the Olympic Committee, seems to be doing pretty well. So one of the other questions we had a chance to pose to, to uh, Finbar is the... Um, the, the idea of interventions, what kinds of interventions were implemented and uh, how did they use those to pr- improve performance? And I, and I know that in previous um, uh, interviews with other experts in, in athletic performance in the Olympics has focused on finding the actual correct sport for a, for a player. In Australia, where it's a small country, they want to make sure that people are targeted to the sport that they'll perform best in. In 2012, at the Olympic trials in Eugene, only so the time frame between the Olympic trials and the Olympic Games in 2012 was approximately six weeks. And in those six weeks, only 13% of our throwers, so three of 23 throwers, improved performance between the trials and the Olympic Games themselves. So what we're seeing is in that very short window of time, athlete performance is deteriorating. So the process that was put in place was really a conversation with the coach and the athlete and say, hey, we're seeing you guys not optimizing performance in the final 30 days, let's say, of the Olympic cycle. What 
is happening in that situation. And it was a very, very straightforward. Did they pick um, too early? That's exactly it. So what we see is that the challenges that the athletes faced in making the team, it's so competitive and so deep, mm-hmm. was actually compromising their performance six weeks later. So this is the challenge that the United States Olympic team faces that other countries don't. And that is that it's so competitive to make the American Olympic team that that becomes the championship right there. And then they're almost exhausted or worn out. And so they can't really compete in the Olympics, which if it's uh, just a few weeks later, that would actually cause a problem for the, the American athletes. It's almost as if you peak too early and you win the playoffs, but then do poorly in the World Series. So one of the solutions that they were able to um, find for the field performance was that a lot of the athletes were going off to Europe to compete in some championships to to make some money. And what the Olympic Committee was able to do is come up with dollars to give to their athletes to allow them to rest and taper so that they are at their best performance for the Olympics themselves. And that's the kind of intervention that the, uh, that the analytics team is trying to implement to help the United States Olympic team perform as best as possible. So that concludes another edition of the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. If you want to hear the full show, it's available for download on SoundCloud and on the Apple Store under podcasts. Don't forget to check out Wharton Moneyball live every Wednesday, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM's Business Radio Channel 111. I am your host, Professor Adi Weiner. I want to thank our podcast producer, Danielle Bruner, our associate producer, Zach Drapkin, and the producer of Wharton Moneyball, Matt Johnson, who is going on to bigger and better things into the future. Join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball Postgame Podcast. And until then, enjoy your sports, enjoy your stats.